Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Before we get started today, I just want to take a moment. I, I, I hate to be redundant. Actually, I don't in this case. Um, I want to take a moment to just honor God for all that he's doing in our midst right now because um, I don't think we've said this too many times, but we need to start saying it. The, the miraculous is becoming increasingly normal in our church. And actually, I, I won't even just say, thank you for that. Uh, I won't even just say our church, but in Peoria in, in 2023. And we, we and so many others have been laboring for many years. Some people in the city have been laboring for revival for decades. And now it's starting to feel like things are moving really quickly. But we've also seen an increase in demonic activity. And if any of you are on the fence about this stuff, let me just make it very clear where we stand. And any of the leadership team, if you want to stop me because I get off track, feel free to do it. But... Um, we are going to we're going to have order and structure. Okay, there's going to be boundaries. But we're going to make space for God to move so that anything is possible. Okay? So that anything is possible. We're going to let him set the boundaries. We want him to set the boundaries, not us. So we're going to listen clearly. We're going to obey quickly to hold those boundaries. And when we do that, some really cool things are going to happen. We've seen that already. And some crazy sort of scary sort of spooky stuff can happen too. And we're going to thank God for that too. Now, some of you will inevitably start to think about the kids. And listen, Becca and I have seven and four-year-old boys. Okay, I understand. Um, we shouldn't be reckless. We need to steward their hearts and minds well, but we cannot shelter them from all of spiritual warfare, from all the demonic stuff, because if we shelter them, they will grow up afraid, and we can't have that. We can't afford that, okay? We're not going to be reckless, okay, but we cannot shelter them. They need to grow up in an environment where they see their parents fighting in this war. And then as early as possible, we need to start teaching them and training them. Because the reality is they're already getting attacked. We have countless examples, especially through our, the demonic dreams that our children experience. They're already getting attacked. We have to start teaching them. We have to start training them. And that includes exposure to spiritual warfare on some level so that it's normal, not scary. They, they, they need to recognize the enemy quickly and run into battle, not away from battle. And they're not going to come in and it's not going to be about them. They're going to run into battle and they're going to call on God to move. Because I want Psalm 144 to be true for all of us and all of our children. He trains our hands for war and our fingers for battle so that we can fight the enemy in specific ways. And then eventually our sons even when they're young, will grow up to be mighty oak trees bearing much fruit, which said another way means winning many battles. And then our daughters, let's not leave out the daughters, they will grow up to be corner pillars, strong enough for a palace, said another way, able to withstand any invasion of the enemy, even when they're young. And then those mighty oak trees and corner pillars can get married and have babies and they pick up where we left off, right? Case in point, on March 8th, the night of March 8th, my now seven-year-old son, Kale, had a dream, a prophetic spiritual warfare dream. And the date is significant because it was the night before Riley and Nicole shared their testimony at Breakthrough. I did not know this until the other day we were talking about it, and Becca was like, do you realize when that was? I was like, oh, wow, that's insane. So um, the morning of March 9th, I'm sitting in the living room reading my Bible, and Kale comes down the stairs. He wakes up early, like I do. And he says, Dad, I have, this, I have this really cool dream. I said, okay, tell me about it. And he said, we went to the playground to play, 
And for those of you that don't know, we live close to Hickory Grove Elementary School, so we go to that playground all the time to play. So it made sense that it was in his dream. We went to the playground to play, and you and me and Lexi were just playing, and then it started to rain. Like, okay, this is relevant for showers. Okay, this is good. <laughs> and then Satan showed up as a phoenix, you know, like the flaming bird. I'm like, that's a little weird. Okay, okay, okay. How did you know that it was Satan? I just knew. I was like, yes, okay, good. Um, and he started to attack us. But Jesus appeared and blocked his path. Like, okay, yes, good. And then he's like, I wasn't scared because I knew Jesus was going to win, so I just kept running around and playing. <laughs> now, that's a word. That's a word right there. Somebody needs to hear that. We need to learn how to play. Um, and then, so Jesus and Satan uh, fought, and eventually Jesus sent, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus sent a tsunami and destroyed Satan. Um, and he'd been learning about tsunamis in school lately, so I was like, okay, that, you know, that, that checks out. Um, and then Jesus, he said, Jesus turned around to me, and I said, thank you. I was like, whoa. And then, he, and then, and then I gave him a fist bump. <laughs> and then I watched, then Jesus went back into heaven, and we walked home, and our house was filled with joy. That's a freaking cool dream. Uh, so I'm like, as a father, I'm just ecstatic that, that my seven-year-old son, you know, is having this kind of crazy prophetic spiritual warfare dream. Because his mama has prophetic dreams, and so for him to start experiencing this at seven years old was really, really cool for me. And the rest of that day, I just asked the Lord for more understanding from the dream. And these are some of the thoughts that came into my mind. The phoenix, I've never heard of a phoenix being depicted as a villain in any story, any myth, any legend. So it was a little weird, I suppose, that the phoenix was how Satan manifested as a somewhat, you could even call the phoenix a messianic figure, because when the phoenix dies, it rises from its own ashes, kind of like Jesus rose from the dead. But... The more I thought about it, that makes a lot of sense, right? Satan masquerades as a messianic figure. The spirit of religion, actually, is what the dream was about. The spirit of religion masquerades as being of God, masquerades as being the right way of doing things, right? Satan wanted to be like God. He enticed Adam and Eve. Hey, you'll be like God. Nobody can be like God. And the, the rain was falling all around. The rain, of course, is Holy Spirit. That's, that's pretty, standard, um, it's pretty standard stuff there. The rain was falling everywhere, just like last night. Like the whole earth was getting drenched. But the area, the ground, above, the, the ground below where the phoenix was hovering didn't get any rain. Okay? This was a picture of the spirit of religion quenching Holy Spirit in specific places, specific regions. The rain was getting blocked by the phoenix. It was actually getting vaporized by the flames of the phoenix. Now you might say, oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. You mean Satan has the power to overcome Holy Spirit? No, he doesn't. That's not what the dream is, was, that's not what it was about. The Lord was very clear about this. Satan doesn't have the power to overcome Holy Spirit, but when Satan is attacking, it's hard to stay focused on the fact, the reality that God is still moving and still speaking. There's significant distraction. It's a picture of how we don't do as much with the power that God has given us because we're so focused on the enemy and we can become paralyzed with fear. And then, of course, the tsunami. This one is pretty obvious, too. This, is, that, this was a very clear picture of this acceleration that we're seeing, this overwhelming move of God and the defeat of the spirit of religion in this region because it's happening. We know that. We know that. But then I asked the Lord, that, so that took me to the end of the dream. But I was like, hold on, I got to go back to the beginning. Why? I said, Lord, why did it start raining? And I don't know about you, but for me, the Lord often answers my questions with questions because he's genuinely interested in his children learning about him, not just him telling the answer. So I said, Lord, why did it start raining? And he said, well, 
what happens before it rains. I'm like, and I started, and I almost jumped out of my seat and shouted the answer. The pressure drops. The pressure of religion is dropping. And fresh rain from the Holy Spirit, freedom is already falling. Because when Jesus has his way in our lives and in our city, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So today I want to preach a message. That was the intro. Today I want to preach a message called The Pressure is Changing. And my targets today, I'm putting all the cards out on the podium, on the altar, the carpets, whatever you want to say. The targets today are the spirit of religion and salvation. We're going after both of these things today. The inspiration for this series comes from Ezekiel 34, 25 through 31. And the book of Ezekiel was written mostly, we don't, we're not ready for it just yet, but you can put, keep it up there if you want. <laughs> uh, it comes from the book of Ezekiel, right, which was written mostly during the captivity in Babylon. And this particular passage is actually a direct requote from Leviticus 26. Okay, the first 25 chapters of Leviticus is all of the laws about how the Israelites are going to worship Yahweh, you know, that was given to them on Mount Sinai. Moses gives them all the laws. This is how you're going to worship Yahweh. This is the sacrificial system. These are your civic laws that govern your society. And then in chapter, there's 25 chapters of that. And someday we're going to do a series through the whole thing. It's going to take three years. Someday. Um, and then in chapter 26, God says, okay, if you listen to me and you do all of these things, here is my covenant with you. So let's read this. Ezekiel 34 slash Leviticus 26. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Does that sound like a dream at all? And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. The people and the place will be a blessing. Tell me that's not true of 307 Oak. That's so cool. And I will send down showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. That's where we get that serious title from. And the trees of the field shall yield the fruit. And the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord. When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those that who, who have enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely. None shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God. Glory, Marv. Glory. Ezekiel wants to remind his people who are in exile in Babylon, hey, remember that promise from Mount Sinai? Seems like an eternity ago. Seems like we've used up all of our chances. But I'm telling you, the Lord says to you today, you have run so far from him. But the Lord says to you today, this promise can still be true for us going forward. And just like how the Lord used Caleb's dream to emphasize to me that the pressure drops in the physical before the rain happens in the physical, right? The pressure of religion drops in the spiritual before the rain happens in the spiritual, right? So, and how that's going to operate with this passage, right, is I knew that I needed to go and investigate, well, what happens leading up to the showers of blessing in verse 27? So we're going to establish kind of set the foundation for the series and establish the context and background for those showers of blessing. So that means we're going to look at some chunks of Ezekiel 34, 1 through 24. And we're also going to see if Jesus has anything to say about any of this. Spoiler alert, Jesus spends most of his ministry preaching out of Ezekiel 34. I did not know that until I started reading it and reading it and reading it, and then I realized all these cross-references down in the margin. Spoiler alert, use your cross-references. Actually, not a spoiler alert, more of just a pro tip, I guess. Use your cross-references, and it's like Matthew, not, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 23, John. Like, it's like, oh man, this is Jesus preached from this passage like the whole time. He was on earth. So let's go to Ezekiel 34, verse 1. 
verses 1 through 6 is our first chunk. If you have subtitles in your Bible, it probably says something like prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. That's a great subtitle for this chunk. And I'm not going to read everything word for word for the sake of brevity, but we'll get the point. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. You haven't been feeding my sheep. You haven't healed the sick. You haven't helped anyone that's been injured. You haven't go sought the lost sheep. You haven't done your job. In fact, go down to the end of verse 4. It says, with force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. So this imagery of sheep being scattered actually originates with the prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen. 17. Micaiah said this to Ahab and Jezebel's face. So, really quick, when you see the spirit of religion operating, rest assured the spirit of Jezebel is right around the corner because the manipulation and control will be there. Okay? Micaiah says to their faces, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. So Ezekiel is calling back to 1 Kings and he's saying to his people now, hey, remember 250 years ago when Micaiah said this would happen to us? Guess what? It happened. We're here in Babylon. Now, who are these shepherds? Well, they're the spiritual leaders of Israel, which are the kings and the priests, the pastors, the government and the pastors. Now, that's weird for us in our Western society because Lord knows our government is not exactly spiritual leadership of any meaningful or, well, I should say it's meaningful. It's not very helpful, I would say, right? Okay, but in, in Israelite society, the kings and the priests were both considered spiritual leaders. And unfortunately, the kings of Israel chose which god or gods to worship. So in, by, the, by the time we get to the exile, the kings actually chose to forsake the worship of Yahweh for the lesser gods, the created gods. And the priests, for the most part, went along with it. There were was, there was some exceptions, I'm sure, but for the most part, the priests went along with it. So they led the people into oppression through worship of demonic spirits. That, that oppression was in the spiritual. And then what happens? Oppression in the physical. The spiritual and the physical are connected because they get sent to Babylon. Then by the time they come back from Assyria, back from Babylon, they reestablish Jerusalem and everything. Okay, in the 400 years leading up to Jesus, what happens? The rise of the Pharisees who lead the people into oppression via the spirit of religion, both in the spiritual and in the physical. They added laws, tons of laws to the original Mosaic law because that wasn't good enough. And they even chose to use the church to enrich themselves on the backs of offerings from the people. Let's go ahead and put that photo up, the first one. This is a really cool, let me get out of the way. This is a really cool rendering of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. Okay, first century AD. Now, try not to get distracted by the red arrow. I couldn't do anything about that. Okay, this is the temple mount, this whole corner up here. Then just across the street a little ways, you have this big building right up here. That's Herod the Great's first palace. Of course, he needed more palaces after that. And then right across the street from Herod's palace, right here, it's a little hard to see, right there is a 6,500 square foot mansion. We discovered this via archaeology. 6,500 square foot mansion that was probably occupied by the high priest at the time of Jesus. A massive, 6,500 square feet. A bunch of people are selling houses and buying houses right now in the church. Okay, 6,500 square feet is enormous, even in the U.S. That's an enormous house, okay? Back then, I mean, look at the size of the rest of the houses. 6,500 square feet back then was like an entire country, (laughs) okay? And how'd they build that? Offerings from the temple. So, yes, we are, we're leading the people in worship of Yahweh, but it's, but it's twisted. 
And of course, Jesus had a lot to say about this, right? You can take the picture down. He talks about this dynamic constantly in his ministry, but I'll just give one example. Matthew 9, 36. Um, this actually isn't words of Jesus, but this is Matthew interpreting Jesus' heart. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, anybody? This statement right here is a catastrophic indictment of the Pharisees because literally what is being said is, hey, remember in Ezekiel 34 when the prophet Ezekiel was talking about us being in captivity in Babylon? Well, guess what? Those conditions back then, it's the same now under the Pharisees. And that would be a wild accusation to make against the Pharisees. What are you talking about? We're in our homeland. We have a temple where it's bigger than the, than the one Solomon built. It's more beautiful than the one Solomon built. And we're, we got the sacrifice. And yeah, Rome's kind of bothering us a little bit. For the, but, but we've got relative autonomy. What do you mean? Spirit of religion. You're in exile in your own land because you are oppressed by the spirit of religion caused by the shepherds of Israel. Now, lest you think this is just like a Jewish thing or an Old Testament thing, Peter makes it very clear in 1 Peter 5, 5, 2 and 3 that uh, all of us church leaders need to take this pretty seriously in the New Testament as well as now. It says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, 6,500 square foot mansion, right? But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So first, Peter, so first Peter, call back to Ezekiel 34. Remember, you with force and harshness, you've ruled them. Now, really quick, before the rest of you start to check out because you're not one of the pastors of the church, is anybody in here a parent? Yes, I'm, their answer is yes. I see a lot of your kids running around. <laughs> okay. So you're in a position of shepherd over your children, right? Uh, college kids who aren't married yet and don't have any kids, you are not off the hook either because many of you serve in the youth ministry, so you're in a position of shepherd over those kids. Right. Or in kids' ministry, holding a baby. When uh, I, I was diving into this, this aspect a little bit in uh, the evil Instagram uh, algorithm shot me a really cool video. It's not always evil, by the way, especially if you know how to curate it. But uh, I saw a really, it was like a viral video, maybe at least for me it was a viral video of, <laughs> oh, this is, I've, if I don't get any laughs out of this, I'll be really surprised. <laughs> it was a lecture of some famous neuroscientist at some like, Super, I, like, I don't even pay attention to that stuff. I don't know why it popped up other than the Lord said I probably said I needed it. Uh, so this famous neuroscientist who no one's ever heard of unless you're a neuroscientist is talking about parenting. And he says, we have discovered, our, our, all of us over the years, we've discovered at least 400 psychological traits that are programmed, for those of you on the podcast, I'm using air quotes, programmed into our children from birth, and those traits will emerge as they grow up, regardless of the environment that they're raised in. Oh, no. Okay, just stay, stay with me for a second. And this guy, I don't know if he's a Christian. It sure sounded like he was. Um, he goes on to say, I don't love the engineering view. I do love the shepherding view of parenting. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. The shepherd chooses the pasture for the sheep. Okay, environment matters a lot. We know that. But when you're in a rough season with your child and you feel like, I just, you, you, inevitably, you start to do this. You start to do this. And then you show up at some therapist's office and you're sobbing your eyes out and you feel so guilty and so ashamed because you're failing as a parent because your child's not turning out the way that you thought they would or think that they should. And, and this guy says, there's 400 traits that are passed down from 
generations and generations and generations and generations that you can't possibly control. And I'm thinking, well, God chose to program at least 400 of those traits, whether I liked it or not, right? So we can't, the shepherd doesn't design sheep. He doesn't reverse engineer sheep. He just shepherds them, okay? God designs the sheep. God designed you and me. And this, anyway, I, I could go on, but this video hit me like a ton of bricks because, you know, you want to know something? I'm a really, really good engineer. And Lord, forgive me for all the days that I choose to engineer those boys instead of shepherd them. The spirit of religion oppresses people. It controls them. It programs them. It engineers them. And they're turned off by the idea of church. Not even so much God most of the time. I've heard so many people come up to me. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested, but I just I can't do organized religion right now. These people are scattered from the houses of the Lord instead of brought in to the houses of the Lord. And they fall prey to the world and the powers of darkness that have dominion in those regions and places. So we must keep the spirit of religion out. So, one through, back to Ezekiel. The shepherds haven't done their job. Now what? Ezekiel 34, verse 10. This is very simple. Thus says the Lord God, I am, what's that word? Against the shepherds. Uh-oh. God's saying, hey, you weren't feeding my people with faith. You were feeding them with religion. So I'm going to put a stop to that. I'm against you. That, should, that, that language right there is about as strong. God doesn't say stuff like that very often. So when he does, you pay attention. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had established themselves as a standard for holiness, not God. Now, they would never have admitted to this. They would never say this. That's the most blasphemous thing you could tell them. But the way, functionally, the way their society worked, they were the standard for holiness. The whole thing was about, hey, the rest of you, you all need us to make sure this thing stays on track and we can stay in God's favor. So you better be thankful that we're here. They were drawing attention to themselves. And of course, Jesus had a lot to say about this, but I'm just going to give one cool example. In Matthew 23... Three through five, he says, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Ezekiel 34. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now, the phylacteries were these little boxes that they put tiny scrolls of scripture in, and they would tie them around their arms and heads and stuff. And it's, it seems goofy to us, but it was a very um, holy thing for them to do, I suppose. Pretty religious thing to do. Uh, and I, I have a tattoo for Psalm 144, and that's permanent. I suppose their solution's better because you can just take the thing off. But if, no, so there's pr- pros and cons, I suppose. Although it would look really goofy with a box tied to your head. So I'm sticking with the tattoos. Um, but I don't, I, I'm going to move past the phylacteries and focus on that last few words. They made their fringes long. Now, put up the first photo from The Chosen. Who is, who is not watching The Chosen right now? And you won't be judged. I, I just I want to encourage you. Okay, okay. That's, thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your honesty. Go watch every episode. It's free. It'll always be free. It'll change your life. It will change your life. Okay? This is a scene from The Chosen. Now, the fringes, that word fringes is actually referring to these white and blue tassels that are tied to the corner of Jesus' tunic. This is also Big James and John. For those of you that are chosen fans, right? They also have them as well. So it wasn't just special for Jesus, right? This was a common thing that, and you can actually go to the next photo and leave that up. This is a zoomed in picture of it. This is what they look like. And there's, I could spend three hours talking just about all of the symbolism and meaning behind the colors and the number of the knots and how everything goes together. But that's not the point I want to make today. 
The verse says they made their fringes long. Well, so what? Everybody had fringes. Let's go to Malachi 4.2. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you're like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. Well, hold on. The Hebrew word for those tassels is something like tzitzit. Um, we're just going to go with that. And <laughs> now that Hebrew word can be translated into English multiple ways. One way to translate it into English is the word fringes. The other way to translate it is wings. And so for 400 years after Malachi, this verse was actually taught consistently by the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, leading up to the time of Jesus, that the Messiah, this was actually a prophecy that the Messiah would have healing power in his wings, his tassels. And many would come, even before Jesus, they would make their tassels very long, and they would try to identify as a would-be prophet or would-be Messiah, they would try to identify with Malachi 4.2 to draw attention to themselves and gain a following and sort of claim that they have this healing power. So go back to that picture, the zoomed-in picture. Spoiler alert, this is a picture from the episode where the woman with the issue of blood is healed. And if you go read that passage in the Gospels, it says... She's thinking in her, in her heart, if I can just touch the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. And we read that and we say, oh, I don't get it. Yeah, of course. And you know what she knew? She had heard it preached many times since she was a little girl from the prophet Malachi that the son of righteousness would come with healing in his wings. And she had heard all those stories about this guy. <laughs> and she thought, I think, that's, I think that's the one from Malachi 4 too. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the one. So if I can just go touch those wings, those fringes, those tassels, that I can be healed. And then she is healed. And guess what happened? The rumor spread far and wide that there was one in Israel who had healing in his wings. And the word spread, hey, that, the, the one prophesied in Malachi 4 too, I think he's here. That's coming true. Now, some people still had trouble believing him, which makes sense because many had risen up before Jesus, making their tassels long, claiming to be of God, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to have healing power in their wings. The spirit of religion can deceive people. And it can say, I don't, I, I've seen this before. I'm not sure about it. Yeah. And it came true right in front of them. But God is, Jesus was very tough on the Pharisees consistently. One, because he loved them. And two, because he knew that they knew better. They knew all of the prophecies, all of the text, everything. They were leaders, and he was treating them like leaders. And I like to think about this alternate universe where instead of, like, condemning Jesus and killing him, the, the Pharisees actually, like, because there were a few, like Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Jairus, who wasn't a Pharisee, but he was a ruler in the synagogue, and he, like, there was a few that did see Jesus for who he was. But what if all of the Pharisees saw Jesus and they were like, you know what? That's it. We're in. <laughs> and they humble themselves. And they start to right the wrongs from Ezekiel 34. And with all of the resources they have, all of the knowledge that they have, think about how insane that revival would have been. Yeah. Now, we still, now, hear me. We needed Jesus to, to die, Okay. But man, when the, when, when the spirit of religion is defeated, anything can happen, right? Anything can happen. So what's the Lord going to do? Back to Ezekiel. 
34. Ezekiel 34, let's go to verse 11. We'll do a couple, couple verses here. I will seek my flock. I will look after them, just like the caring of a shepherd for his herd on the day when he's in the midst of his scattered flock. Verse 14, I will feed them in good pasture. Their pasture will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good pasture. Psalm 23, anybody? Ezekiel read it before. And on lush pasture, they will feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my flock, and I myself will allow them to lie down. There it is again. Declares the Lord Yahweh, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the one hurt. I will strengthen the sick. So all of those things, that list of things the shepherds didn't do in 1 through 10, God, Yahweh says, I'm going to do those things. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to do them. The Lord himself is going to come and do this. He did it then. He's doing it now. So the question is very simple. Are we going to stand in the way of that, or are we going to participate in that? We're meant to reflect God's glory, not absorb it. Amen. Amen. Yes. Now, here's the problem. You were created in God's image. So you know what's really easy to do? Absorb instead of reflect. If anyone starts to seek a platform or seek recognition for their giftings or take credit for yourself, rest assured you're standing in the way of the Lord's work. We need to create space for the Lord to do his work. That means I'm backing up. I must decrease so that he must increase. Now, by all means, here's the really cool part. The Lord is drawing people here. Okay, we've got a ton of stories of people just I say, I saw the sign, I walked in. That's pretty wild. I saw an Instagram post and I walked in. Now, I, I encourage you all to invite people like crazy. I really, really do. Um, but it's really, really cool to know that the Lord is just bringing people in, whether we invite them or not. And this should tell you, it tells you a lot of things, but here's two things I want to focus on. God is doing exactly what he promised in Ezekiel 34 at 307 Oak Street. And many other places, but he's doing it here. I think that's really cool. And he's giving you an opportunity to participate in a Ezekiel 34 prophecy being fulfilled thousands of years after the fact. I think that's, I just think that's really cool. And that should get you excited. We've been hearing so many testimonies about breakthrough and, and healing lately and you know what the common theme is that I've noticed? The Lord gets the credit. Like no one has even mistakenly been like, you know, Heidi preached this message and I just, and I, I was set free. And then uh, Jared came up and prayed for me and anointed me with oil and, and, and healed me. Every single person says, I showed up and I just, I started crying. <laughs> From the time I walked in the door, like when Daryl said hi to him at the door, it's like I started crying. <laughs> And, and then I cried through worship and I cried through the message and I found myself up at the altar. I don't even know why. And, and then somebody, I don't even know, somebody I don't know just put their hand on me and I was healed. The Lord's doing his work. This is one of the ways you can know that all of this is for real. This is how you can know that the spirit of religion is losing ground here because the spirit of religion would say, our ideas our structure, our way of doing things, our wording in our prayers are the reason why people are getting healed and people are getting set free. But that's not what's happening. The Lord's doing his work. You see, we're all sheep here. Even those of us that started this church. The Lord drew us to this particular corner of the pasture, you might say. Okay? And this whole time we have done our best to maintain this posture of sheep. Now, some of us are functioning like fathers and mothers. We've talked about this all the time. Caring for the younger sheep or the lesser experienced sheep. But ultimately, we're all in this pasture, so we're going to keep it as simple as possible, and we're going to continue to do our best to simply obey what the shepherd says and stay out of his way. The Lord's going to draw people here. He's going to heal them when they get here, and he's going to strengthen them as they remain. And anyone that tries to use this corner of the pasture and this family to draw people to themselves, to make themselves strong, to make themselves look good, to make themselves look like they're an awesome spiritual leader, the Lord will probably send you out for another lap in the wilderness. I'm going to, I just, just book it. So, 
What will you do with this pasture that you have been given? Ezekiel 34, 17. As for you, my flock. See, now the attention shifts to the sheep. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Isn't it enough for you to keep the best pasture for yourselves? Must you trample down the rest? Isn't it enough for you to drink clear water for yourselves? Must you muddy the rest with your feet? Turns out Jesus talks about this. Matthew 25, very famous passage. Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one another like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's quoting Ezekiel 34. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed into my, uh, into my kingdom. which you will have inherited from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me as a guest. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you came to me. Doesn't that sound like Ezekiel 34? The passage goes on to say, the righteous will say, those sheep will say, well, hey, Lord, when did we do all those things for you? And the Lord says, well, when you did all those things for the least of these, the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So, why does that matter? Well, those of us that are here in this corner of the pasture need to be careful because we, just because we're not a Pharisee, doesn't mean that we can't fall prey to the spirit of religion too and stir it up in this body, in this corner of the pasture. I talked about this a few weeks ago. Isn't it enough for you that, that your name is written in heaven? And I'm going to add to that, if you don't mind, Ike. Isn't it enough for you that you were gifted this pasture, that you were brought here, that you were cared for, and that now you're given an opportunity to care for somebody else? Why do you have to stomp all the grass out so nobody can feed anymore? Why do you have to then get your muddy, grassy feet all in the fresh water, those streams that you're supposed to be, we're supposed to be laying next to from Psalm 23? Why are you going to muddy the water like this with that spirit of religion? Okay? You know, Salem weekends, that's like six, seven weeks a year where there's no church. We've got a lot of ministries to fund. That's a lot of church to miss. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. You know, that person, they never go up to the altar for the altar call. They must, they must have a really hardened heart. That person goes up to the altar every single weekend. They're always crying. They must, they must never turn it around. They must have a lot of sin issues. Something, one of the two. You know, you know that guy in 37, he always prays these like really short, simple prayers. And I don't know, maybe he's not listening to us like better prayers. We pray these like long, like, like really powerful prayers. Maybe I need to have coffee with him and try to teach him because, I mean, like how is he going to heal anybody with those short, simple prayers? How is anybody going to get saved with those short, simple prayers? And we did this with the Asbury Revival too. You know, I'm not sure that's a real revival because like I have this 27-point definition for what a revival is and they only have like 24 of them. And, you know, they're posting that stuff online and I don't think that's very humble of them because they should just keep that to themselves. And that's a that's a Christian college, and they're skipping like three weeks of the theology classes. How are they going to? I mean, we've seen that come against this church specifically time and time again. And when that spirit tries to come in, usually working through specific people, we address the spirit with truth, and we send it packing for help. And we address the image bearer of God with as much love as we can possibly muster. We bless them as they leave, usually for another lap in the wilderness, because God still cares about that person and is still going to continue to draw them to himself. It just may not be in this corner of the pasture. Let's keep going. Ezekiel 34, 22. Verse 24. This is where it starts to get really good. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd 
my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So this is clearly referring to Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. And Jesus identifies himself as this person many, many times. But let's just go to one example. John 10, very famous passage. Starting in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Pause. He's literally telling the people listening to him, I am the source of salvation. That's a pretty bold claim to make. And we'll come in and go out and we'll find pasture. Ezekiel 34, Psalm 23. The thief comes only so that he can steal and kill and destroy. And I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. I am the one that Ezekiel was talking about in chapter 34. The good shepherd lays down, but he adds to it. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd, sees the wolf approaching and abandons the sheep and runs away. And the wolf seizes them and scatters them. Verse 14, again, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and they know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring those also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock, one shepherd. Because of this, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I might take possession of it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down voluntarily. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take possession of it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. That's another super bold thing to say, because what he's saying very literally is, I have power over death itself. I can lay down my life, and guess what? I can take it again. He's the only person that has ever lived that could say that. Verse 19, again, there was division among the Jews because of these words. Because, of course, everybody had the exact same data set. Everybody had the same information. They watched for three, three and a half years. This man, the son of righteousness, come with healing in his wings, And some of them said, hey, I remember hearing about all this stuff. And looks like like the one to me, I believe. And then there's another group of people that saw all of that stuff come true. And they said, "I, I, I I remember all those passages. In fact, I have them memorized. But it's just not, it's not quite what I expected. I don't believe. I said in the beginning that we're going after the spirit of religion and we're going after salvation today. So we can just move into a time of response now. And I I can't think of a better way to attack the spirit of religion and to address salvation than uh, this final illustration with, about the thief on the cross. I'm actually going to steal some of this from a preacher that I love very much. His name's Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish accent, so it's really fun to listen to him. And this is another viral video that popped, on, popped up on my evil Instagram feed. You know, I can't, I can't wait to get to heaven and meet the thief on the cross and ask him, how did that go, how did that shake out for you? Because like, you're, like you're a lifelong criminal, you're getting crucified next to Jesus, there's a moment there actually where you're cursing him. Uh, you never went to church, you never tithed, you never preached a message like Phil did, you never led worship, you never healed anybody, you never got baptized, you never read the Bible before, you never went to 37, like you put zero goose eggs up on the church scoreboard. Nothing. And yet you made it. How did that go for you? So the thief 
says, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he dies and the next moment he's in paradise in heaven, I suppose. And he's walking up to the gate and the gate agent angel is there. And and he says, what are you doing here? And the thief says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I'm telling you, I don't know. Well, hold, okay. Um, Just excuse me, let me go get my supervisor really fast. Uh, So the supervisor angel comes over. He says, sorry about the confusion. Um, I'm sure you're supposed to be here, clearly. Uh, Just help help me out here, because the Bible says the angels look into the mystery of salvation. They don't understand it. Can, can you just, can you just, um, just a few questions, and then we can, I'm sure, we'll just get you moving on. Are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> and and he's like, I've uh, never heard of it in my life. Oh, okay. Um, um. So, and you said you weren't baptized, right? You said that. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, um, what about your doctrine? What, 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 where are you at in like your doctrine of like the, like the Trinity? Are you pro or like, what do you mean the Trinity? Um, okay, well, what about like the authority of Scripture? What do you, what do you talk? What do you mean Scripture? Um, okay. Uh, so finally, in a fit of frustration, the supervisor angel says, "Well, <laughs> on what basis are you here?" And the thief says, I don't know, but the man on the middle cross said to come. That's, that's the only answer he could give. The spirit of religion can't stand that. Because the ones that have the most points on the scoreboard get it. I know for a fact I've got a lot more points up on the scoreboard than that thief does. In fact, we should. We should put points up on the scoreboard. Not because it gets us into heaven, but because I love, I love my Savior. And it's the only way I can try to possibly thank him. So till, to my dying breath, I'm going to put as many points up on that scoreboard as I possibly can. But here's the deal. When I get up there and the angel says... On what basis are you here? The only answer I can give is the same one that he gave. The, the thief on the middle cross that I could come. The man, the man on the middle cross that I could come. That's the only answer I can give. That's the only answer Craig can give. That's the only answer Daryl can give. It's the only answer Heidi can give. It's the only answer Steph can give. It's the only answer any of us can give. I don't know why I'm here, but the man on the middle cross said I could come. So, with the time we have left, it's time to respond. There are people in this room, there are people on the podcast that are imprisoned by the spirit of religion. It may be something small, it may be something medium, gigantic, I don't know. Find someone to help you be, I guess, humble enough and brave enough to come forward and receive care. We're just sheep trying to care for each other. Some of you Maybe you're hearing about this man, Jesus, for the first time. And when I told you that story about the thief on the middle cross, you, you got really excited because you think you're probably closer to him than, than maybe some of the other people in this room. You know, I love what Jason preached a few weeks ago. It was so beautiful how no, no matter how far away you think you have run from him, no matter how many years you've run from him, 
no matter how many evil things you think you've done, today is still an opportunity for you to stop walking this way and turn around. And I promise you, when you turn around, you're going to bump right into his chest because you don't have to figure out how to get all the way back to Jesus. He's been following you this whole time. And he's just been, he's been speaking very quietly to you, never going to force you, never going to coerce you. Hey, my son, that's not, that's not what's best for you. Come follow me. My daughter, it's not what's best for you. Come follow me. Just come follow me. Just come follow me. I know you feel very broken right now. There's all this stuff that you can't make sense of, and you feel like you're tearing, it, your inside is just tearing itself apart, and you don't know what to do. And I'm, just t- I'm telling you, I can fix all that. Just come follow me. Just come follow me. So the band's going to play a song. We're going to create some space for God to do his work. Let's pray together. God in heaven, you are the creator of the universe. And you sent your son Jesus to us to be that man on the middle cross pay the debt for our sin to offer us this gift of salvation and if you defeated death itself and sin itself on that cross then for sure you can break the chains of the spirit of religion as well somebody there's people in this room God that that need to be have a fresh awakening to this idea that your yoke is easy and your burden is actually very light. And that all of those rules, supposed rules in that text are not, it's not to oppress people, it's not to constrict people, it's to give as much freedom as is possible. Because all you're saying in this book that you so lovingly gave us is, hey, I am the creator of the universe, I've created you in my image, and here is how I have designed you to be in relationship with each other and in relationship with me. And so if you do these things, this is my covenant of peace with you. No one is gonna, no one's gonna make you afraid. I'll give you a pasture to lie down and I will feed you. I will heal your wounds. No one's going to attack you anymore. And sure, on this side of on this side of eternity, there's still going to be some some bumpy spots. There's still going to be some really rough patches. Because once you turn and you start walking towards me, the enemy is going to come to steal and to kill and destroy. And so I need you to be planted, rooted deeply in a corner of the pasture like this one or maybe another one with other sheep so that they can come alongside of you and help strengthen you and help remind you, hey, you're you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God, and he's got you right where he needs you to be, and he's just asking you for the millionth time, just just keep following me, just keep following me, just keep following me. So God, right now, we cast out the spirit of religion in the name of Jesus Christ. It has no place in this room. And right now, we ask that you show yourself to image bearers of you and break in to their hearts. Some for the first time, some for the thousandth time, God, that you would break in and you would renew their minds and you would grab a hold of them. You've drawn them here. You've been drawing them to yourself since the day they were born. And God, right now, do what only you can do, which is come in and redeem somebody. Come in and heal somebody. Come in and set somebody free. In the mighty name of Jesus.